Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Good morning. It's so pleasingly full in here. This is very, uh, this is a new perspective. This brings a lot of joy to my heart. Uh, I want to start off the morning with a very simple question. How many of you have met someone famous? Who is the most famous person you have met? Lay it on me, Kevin. Fontel Williams. That is a good one. Mike. Tim Keller. There we go. Ronnie, did I see a hand? So be it. I was, I was trying to think of... <laughs> I was trying to think who it would be for me, and I think it's uh, a tie. I went to elementary school with Tessa Virtue, and I co-led VBS with Shad. So I think depending on uh, different demographics... One of those will be more impressive than the other, but those, those are my two best, probably. I, I'm going to tell you uh, my dad's two famous people stories because they are both hysterically short. Here's the first one. I was in Chicago uh, for a conference, and I went out to eat one night, uh, and partway into the meal, I, uh, I noticed kind of everyone was muttering and looking towards the door, uh, and I looked over, and Scotty Pippen had just walked in. Um, this was like 1990s in Chicago. Scotty Pippen, part of one of the most famous teams on the planet. Big deal that he just walked into the restaurant. So we're always like, you know, Dad, did, like, did you go over? Did you talk to him? No, he was uh, trying to enjoy his meal, and so was I. So uh, I didn't bother him. And here's the second story. <laughs> that's, that's it for the first one. I was in New York for a conference, and I went out to see a play one night, uh, and the people who had the tickets for the seats next to mine arrived, and it was uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter. <laughs> and my dad, you know, J- Johnny Cash and June Carter, icons in their industry, um, and, and Johnny particularly, you know, very influential, and one of my parents' favorite artists. Like, my dad is a big Johnny Cash fan. He's sitting next to him in the theater. So we're like, Dad, did you talk to him? Did, did you say, like, you know, oh, Mr. Cash, I'm a big fan? No, he, you know, he was out trying to enjoy a show, and so was I, so I didn't bother him. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> those, those are the stories. <laughs> If, you know, if you can even call them stories, because what they really boil down to is one time I was in the same room as somebody famous. But it seems to me that a lot of times that is what these stories kind of can be reduced to, that one time me and somebody that you have heard of were within about 25 feet of each other. But we still consider these stories that are worth telling because it puts us in the same room and connects us to something that was happening that was special. For Scottie Pippen in the 90s, you know, the Chicago Bulls were making sports history. Johnny Cash had this career that spanned decades uh, and was so impactful and meaningful to so many people. They were both involved in something that was very special. And when we see something special happening, we want to make ourselves uh, a part of it, to associate ourselves with it, uh, almost as if some of that specialness can be conferred onto us by being close to it. This morning's uh, Holy Ghost story is about special things that were going on in the early church and the people who chose to associate themselves with that. There are a lot of characters uh, at play in this story, and it's a relatively short story, but I think they all have uh, different things that they can teach us about uh, the Holy Spirit, so I want to spend a little bit of time this morning with each of them and look at their, their sort of micro-stories within this larger story. 
all series, we're going to be looking at stories about the Holy Spirit and seeing what they can tell us about the work of the Spirit then and what that can teach us about when the Holy Spirit is working today. So I want to I want to look at what we can uh, we can pull from this story along those lines. So with that in mind, we'll start with the uh, the person of the hour himself, the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, I, I find the Holy Spirit in this story to be a little bit of uh, a riddle because this story is not really about the Holy Spirit per se. You know, he's mentioned a couple of times, he, you know, Peter name checks the Holy Spirit a couple of times, but we're not actually specifically told that he does anything. Like there's no narration saying, you know, and then the Spirit filled Peter and he said X, Y, Z, or, you know, the Spirit came upon, upon Barnabas and so he X, Y, Z. To an extent, we are kind of left to just draw inferences about him from what we see happening in the story. Um, and I think more than just being sort of generally mysterious in this way, the Holy Spirit is actually kind of an elephant in the room in this story because uh, he brings up some tough questions uh, when he's so closely associated with the deaths of these two people. And I want to start there because, uh, to be honest, I don't know that I have great answers for those questions. I think, I think they're challenging and, and I don't know that I can necessarily lay them to rest. But I do think that it's helpful to kind of name those things at the start and get past the things that we don't know for sure so that we can keep ourselves from being distracted uh, later on from the things that we do. The main question that I think we, we pretty much just need to address out the gate boils down to this. Did the Holy Spirit kill Ananias and Sapphira? And I can tell you, when I was preparing for this sermon, I read different articles and commentaries that ultimately sort of laid the, the responsibility for this at the feet of almost everybody in the story. I read that God uh, withdrew his grace and allowed Satan to consume them. I read that the Holy Spirit actively killed them. I read that Peter basically scared them to death. Uh, I read that it was Ananias and Sapphira's own shock and shame that killed them. Uh, and I think that this question sticks so much and we try so hard to answer it because of the seeming severity of a death penalty issued here for what seems like a, a kind of trivial crime. So I want to start off just first looking at a, a few reminders about death and about God's relationship with it and role in it. Firstly, I want to remind us that our lives belong to God. They're, they're His. Romans 14.8 says, If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Basically, our lives are his, and he gets to decide what to do with them. Second, God working through a death to reinforce something true about himself is not new in this story. God can and has worked through death. There are a lot of instances in the Bible where we can see this coming up in stories, um, but the one that I think immediately comes to mind for me when I read this is the story of Uzzah, who is the Israelite man uh, that we learn about in 2 Samuel, who reached out to touch the Ark of the Covenant because it was about to fall on the ground. He, he reached out and basically caught it to stop it from falling. And because of that, Scripture says, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. That's a whole other sermon, but I, I bring that up just to, to remind us that it would not be new if it was the case that, that God had passed a death sentence here. Third is that death is an earthly condition. I think what we find troubling in this passage is what we perceive as the permanence and the finality uh, of Ananias and Sapphira's death. But death is only final for the body. 
and only permanent if we believe that this life is where it ends. What lies beyond this life for any individual person's spirit is something that only God knows. We don't have, ultimately, all of the facts that God took into consideration when he stood in judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. When I started out uh, preparing for this message and in my conversations with Mike, I would have said that when we read this story, there's not necessarily any reason to believe that Ananias and Sapphira were saved or that they had any knowledge of or relationship with Jesus. There's, there's not much to say about that. But the reality of that is only God knows if that's true or not. Uh, as I was reading about this, I came across an analysis of the text from the pastor and theologian, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, and he said of this story, the punishment of Ananias and Sapphira, though extreme, was for this life only. Basically, we get a snapshot of Ananias and Sapphira at this, this moment of sin, kind of a low moment for them. But when God saw them at that moment, he had perfect and full knowledge of their hearts and their spirits. So whether he stood in judgment of them and condemned them, as he ultimately will everyone who is not saved, or if he chose to call them home to heaven in an act of you know, extreme and profound mercy, such as he's shown everyone who is saved, we have to believe that he made that decision in a righteous and good way and made it from an eternal perspective and not just an earthly one. The fourth thing I want us to bear in mind is that death is what we all deserve. Uh, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. This is one of the, the kind of fundamental, foundational truths that our faith is built on, that the gospel truth is built on, that we are saved because what we actually deserve is death. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira was nothing that shouldn't by rights happen to any of us uh, who have sinned against God, except by the grace and mercy of God and the sacrifice of Jesus. And the final thing before we, uh, before we leave the death talk behind for a little bit is that death is waiting for us all. Someday everyone who is here is going to die. Everyone who has ever lived at some point died. One way or another, Ananias and Sapphira were going to die. If we come to this passage and demand to know why them, why for this, why at that time, then we're moving beyond truths that we can learn from Scripture, and we're moving toward demanding an accounting for God, from God for his own timing. These are the same questions that we could ask about the death of anybody. Why them? Why then? For what? Uh, and, and those are mysteries that only God has the answer to. We aren't actually entitled to know the answer to those questions for anybody. So, did the Spirit kill Ananias and Sapphira? At the end of the day, I think the best I can do is maybe. Smarter and better educated people than me uh, debated it, are debating it, will debate it in the future. But as I spent some time thinking about this, I just felt that ultimately understanding the precise mechanism of their death, you know, like who exactly killed them, is maybe the least important thing that we can learn from this passage. You know, there's, there's just so much more in their story that I think is beneficial and profitable to us. So I don't think, as far as what it says in the passage, that there's much more that we can say than it seems, at least to me, that either directly or indirectly, they died because of the Spirit's judgment. But regardless of what the truth of the matter is, and, and one day we'll get to find out, but not today, unfortunately, in the meantime, it helps me to remember that whatever the truth is, I trust that God is good and righteous uh, in everything that he does, and that includes in the situation of Ananias and Sapphira. So instead of spending more time dwelling on the things that we don't know, I want to move on and, and focus on the things that we do know 
and see what exactly does this passage tell us about the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a lot of things that it has to say about him, and some of them are uh, very explicit, some of them are more implied. The first thing that I want us to keep in mind is that the Holy Spirit is God. This is maybe the clearest uh, and most straightforward truth that is buried in this passage. Um, Peter first refers to Ananias uh, as having lied to the Spirit and then later says that he's lied to God. He refers to them interchangeably. The two are one and the same. The second is that the Spirit's holiness, power, and authority are also God's holiness and power and authority. And this goes hand in hand with the Spirit being God. It makes sense that the attributes of God would also be attributes of the Spirit. At a surface level, you know, if we just read this story and don't think too much about it, you could kind of say that the moral is basically like mess around and find out, like cross God and die, is, is sort of the most tempting thing to read into it. And Peter calls what Ananias and Sapphira did, calls their lie, testing the Holy Spirit. And scripture and, you know, Jesus' very familiar refutation of Satan when he was tempting him, uh, it's, it, they're both very clear that testing God is not something that you do. It's not, it's not a game that you play. When you test him, his holiness is what's profaned. Testing, testing the Holy Spirit, that is, as it is with God. If you believe, um, as, as I concluded a second ago, that Ananias and Sapphira's deaths were in some way a result of the Spirit's judgment, then we're seeing that his power over life and death is also the same power as God's, and his authority to stand and make that judgment is the same as God's authority. Total and irrefutable. Third, the Spirit's work in believers is something that's freeing and life-changing. I think when we read this passage, it's very easy for our our eyes to kind of glide right over the the portion at the beginning where it talks about the early church and, uh, you know, kind of go to where the fireworks are, this big show-stopping miracle of Ananias and Sapphira's death, uh, and miss the everyday work that the Spirit is doing to transform every other person in the story. He's taking this disparate group of people from all kinds of backgrounds uh, and turning them into a community as he remakes each of their hearts in the image of Jesus. Fourth, his work can't be faked. Basically, there's no pretending your way into salvation. Um, And to illustrate this and understand it more fully, I want to move on to our next set of characters and and zoom in on uh, Ananias and Sapphira for a little bit. So like I mentioned uh, earlier, I think they tend to, to get the spotlight in this story, and it makes sense. Kind of the big, the big action moments in this story are, are centered around what they do and what happens to them. And I have to say, I, I really feel for these two. I have a lot of, a lot of empathy for them, because I'll tell you what I, what I see in them at the moment that we're introduced to them through this story. I see a couple who is encountering a community that is living their lives in a way that is identifiably and radically different from the way that other people are leading their, leading their lives and the way that they've been leading their own lives. They see a community that is generous and unified and invested in each other's lives and committed to putting each other's needs ahead of their own. Basically, they see that something special is happening in this group of people. And like we discussed, you know, when we see something special happening, it has a draw. We want to be a part of it. We want to connect ourselves to it. And, and I, I just look at that and I think, you know, can you blame them? Isn't that what we want our church to be doing? Isn't that what the, the kind of community that we want to see come to our city as well? The place where they start to run into trouble is when they actually try to participate in that community. Scripture says that together they sold a piece of property. However, Ananias kept back part of the proceeds and with his wife's knowledge, uh, brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Basically, this is the moment of their sin as identified by scripture. And I think it can be a little tempting as readers to zero in and, and focus on the fact of the lie here. Um, you know, the, the passage highlights the lie. Peter identifies the lie as their sin. The passage in my Bible is headed as lying to the Holy Spirit. The, the lie tends to get a little bit emphasized. But I think that Ananias and Sapphira's sin is better understood not through the action of the lie, but through the posture of their hearts. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, taught that murder basically is an externalized sin, an action that grows from a root sin of anger, which is an internal condition that is, is equally sinful and equally objectionable to God. That, that anger that starts in the heart is the same as committing murder in God's eyes. Um, so I see Ananias and Sapphira's lie very similarly as this kind of fruit, you can think of it, that is growing from a root sin that, that is uh, beginning in their hearts. I think uh, in order to understand what these root sins are, we can take a little look at what Ananias and Sapphira stand to gain from their lie. And the first thing uh, that Luke tells us is, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they held everything in common. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. We see a lot of, a lot of collective uh, you know, words here. The entire group, everyone, all of those who believed. We can take from this maybe that what Peter and Sapphira uh, saw to gain was inclusion in the community. They may have misunderstood that this gift was a prerequisite for being a part of the church, mandatory for church involvement. The text carries on and says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. I don't really understand why Barnabas is singled out uh, in this passage for his gift, um, given that, you know, as we just saw, the, the passage says that everyone who owns property seems to be doing this. But what I do see is that he is being singled out. Um, maybe it was a particularly generous gift. Maybe his, his willingness to, to give this gift showed the apostles that he was someone who was ready and able to serve, because we'll see Barnabas again throughout Acts, uh, involved in a lot of other very special things and, and carrying on a very fruitful ministry. So I think perhaps Ananias and Sapphira see an opportunity here not just to belong, but to be exemplary, to be renowned, to, to be singled out for honor. And then the third thing is just the basic financial aspect of it. Again, it says that Ananias kept back a part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Basically, he sees a two-for-one deal here. He can get all of the glory, all of the renown, all of the reputation for this gift at, you know, 50% off or 25% off. He sees an opportunity to get some money in his pocket and still reap all of the benefits of making one of these great gifts. And in these three gains for Ananias and Sapphira from this lie, I see four... Um, Sorry, I got distracted by my slides there for a second. I see four basic root sins, uh, and I'm going to lay those out for you here as well. The first is greed, just, just simple greed. It's kind of funny to say that about uh, a story that is kind of centered around the act of giving a gift. They, ultimately, they still gave away money. They were, they were making a gift to the church. But, but it's true that there's, some, there's a greed element here. 
I think we can almost hear the, the befuddlement and confusion and sorrow in Peter's words when he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? And what he's naming here is what I see as kind of the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira. The things that they were greedy for were already theirs. They were, they were greedy for the things that they already possessed and, and covetous of their own belongings. It's, it's a portrait of dissatisfaction uh, to, to want so badly the things that you already have. The second is legalism. The reality uh, is this. No one in the church was requiring Ananias and Sapphira uh, to do anything, as, at least as far as it relates to their participation in the church. No one asked them to sell their property. No one asked them to give money to the church. No one backed them into a corner where you can say, oh, they felt like they had to lie. Nobody was putting these demands on them. Instead, what's happening is they're buying into an idea of Jesus that is setting up extra fences between them and him, mandating behavior above and beyond what scripture requires of, of any believer to be a full and true participant in Christ's body as the church. Uh, and that, that is just textbook uh, legalism. The third is pride. The purpose of this deception is not so that Ananias and Sapphira, or is so that Ananias and Sapphira can be glorified through their gift, not, not God. It's basically what separates them from what, what everyone else is doing. And put, I think putting our own glorification ahead of God's glorification uh, is about as root as, as a sin can get. That is kind of the, the condition in the heart that leads to all other conditions, is the, the prideful act of putting ourselves ahead of God. And then our final root sin here is hypocrisy. You might have heard uh, Mike say before in previous sermons that legalism breeds hypocrisy, and I think that is exactly what we're seeing happen uh, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Because they're so concerned with making their worldly aspirations look like eternal aspirations, you know, turning the act of trying to make a bit of money and get a bit of reputation into looking like a selfless sacrifice for the church, they're turning themselves into exactly the kind of people that Jesus was warning against when he said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of bones, uh, the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I kind of see... The, the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira as they're, they're almost like the only people at the, at the silent disco who don't have a pair of headphones. If you're not familiar with the silent disco, you know, everyone's got the headphones on. They're listening to the same music. They're dancing, you know, they've got, they've got the countdown music playing. Ananias and Sapphira are, are in the room. They see everybody dancing, but they can't hear the music. They can probably, you know, if they're watching, they can pick up the beat. They might be able to imitate some of the steps but they're, they're following the actions of others. They're not actually hearing the music. If the song changes, everybody else is going to respond to that. But Ananias and Sapphira can only respond when they see the actions of other people changing so that they're changing the actions that they are imitating. It's the presentation of an, an external reality that doesn't match what's actually happening within. Now you might be thinking to yourself uh, at this point, or maybe, maybe long before this point, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Is that not who we are ostensibly here to, to discuss today? And that would be fair, because I have not mentioned him in a little while. But he is still the one we are here to learn about. So you may recall that I brought up these sort of uh, fruit and root sins in Ananias and Sapphira because they were examples of 
how the work of the Holy Spirit can't be faked. And I think that when we compare the condition of Ananias and Sapphira's hearts, these root sins, with the community of believers that, uh, that we hear described all around them, we will see that their sins are not only a, a poor cover for uh, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit, but actually antithetical to the work of the Holy Spirit on the lives of uh, all of us who are sinners. They, are, they stand in direct opposition to what the Spirit does. In the work of the, the church that Ananias and Sapphira are connected to and, and people like Barnabas, we see that in place of uh, greed, the Spirit gives generosity. While Ananias and Sapphira are covetous of the things that they already have, the church is open-handed. Their perspective has changed from looking at possessions as, you know, the things that I own to seeing them as the things that God has given us to the benefit of our community, for the good of all of us. They have the satisfaction of a spirit-filled life, uh, and, and that frees them from these ties of materialism that are still enslaving Ananias and Sapphira. We see that in the place of legalism, the Holy Spirit gives grace. Scripture tells us great grace was on them all. It is a defining trait of this community. Their, their identity is, is based on this grace that is on them all. In times of need, they're present to each other and supportive of one another, and not just in financial matters. I think that we see in that in Barnabas, who is called by the apostles the son of encouragement. That's not a nickname that you get because one time you gave a ton of money to the church. That doesn't make you the son of encouragement. That's a name that is made through hours in fervent prayer with people who are hurting, through days spent walking alongside people who are grieving, through years in prayer with other believers as we walk through those peaks and valleys of the life-resisting sins, manage those setbacks, celebrate those triumphs. It, it basically is a nickname that says, I know how to extend to others the same grace that has been extended to me. That's, that's the defining characteristic of this group. And if we see that Barnabas or any other member of the church went above and beyond in their, their giving or their generosity, it's not because that's what's required of them to take part in the body uh, of Christ, but because through that partaking in Christ, they're empowered to do more by the Spirit. They're enabled to go above and beyond. We'll see that in the Spirit's work, instead of pride, there's fear in the church. I think this is kind of the other elephant in the room, that a couple of times in this passage we're told a great fear came on all who heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And, and it, it overcome, it, it's, it's on the entire community. The whole group of believers who heard were filled with great fear. And I think that when we read this, it can be easy to see the Spirit-filled life as a life with a gun to the back of your head. And that as you walk through it, you're, you're wondering, you know, which misstep is going to be the one that makes him pull the trigger? Which one's going to be the one that has gone too far and I'm going to fall dead at the apostles' feet? And while I think that there is, uh, you know, a, a stern warning to the church in this story about these, these root sins of greed and legalism and pride and hypocrisy and about the, the consequences of, you know, playing games with God, of testing the Holy Spirit... I don't believe that that picture of the gun to the back of the head is the case. And, and one of the best reminders, I think, in this story of that is the, the man at whose feet Ananias and Sapphira fall, fall dead. Uh, and that is Peter, you know, the denier himself. Peter is a guy who I think probably knows a thing or two about telling lies about what Jesus has done in your life in order to protect your image and boost your standing in the, the eyes of the people who are around you. He's got some experience in, uh, in that department. 
But rather than looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life after that, wondering, you know, is God going to kill me for that lie that I told when I said that I, had, I didn't know Jesus? We read that he's testifying with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Um, and later in the passage, we'll, we'll hear that he and the other apostles are doing many signs and wonders among the people. The book that this passage comes from is called The Acts of the Apostles. It's, it's the story of the, you know, the miracles and the incredible ministry that the Spirit enabled Peter and the other disciples to undertake uh, because of their knowledge of Jesus. That's not a picture of a man who is afraid of when the other shoe is going to drop on his life. Because, you know, after all, as we've already talked about, none of us knows when we're going to die, but it is going to come for all of us. But that's exactly the kind of fear that salvation and and knowledge of Jesus frees us from. Whereas the fear that the Holy Spirit brings is the fear that the Proverbs tell us about when they say things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Or when they say, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life turning people away from the snares of death. Or when it says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. This fear sets us up to resist these these sorts of heart sins that can set in and, and gives us that humbling awe that tells you exactly how foolish it is to try and put yourself ahead of the one who created the universe. And finally, instead of hypocrisy, the spirit brings truth. Jesus actually refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. It's, it's uh, as much part of his identity as, as grace is an identity of the church. He gives wisdom to understand God's ways and thoughts, as we see in, in the church's early flourishing and development in this passage. He gives discernment to differentiate uh, between what is God's work and what is the enemy's work, which we see in Peter as he names Satan as the one who nudged Ananias and Sapphira towards their deception. And he brings revelation of God's glory and the redemptive work of Jesus as we see in the miracles that he works among the apostles all throughout Acts and in the unity and the grace that is shared uh, within the church. One of the goals for this uh, series, as I said at the top, is not just for us to learn about and reflect on the person of the Spirit as he's revealed in Scripture, but to actually think through what we can take away from those truths uh, to help us know what to expect when we see the Spirit at work among us today. So just as we close out, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time naming some of those things uh, that I think we can take from the story of Ananias and Sapphira and expect to see when the Spirit is at work uh, in the church today. The first is that the work of the Spirit is special and identifiable. I think one of the ways that we can tell when the Spirit is uh, at work uh, in, in, you know, among us today is that people both in the church and outside the church will be able to look at it and say there's something going on there that's different. It might be, for those of us within it, at times surprising or scary as we see in this story. There's, there's some surprises and some, some scares in this story without a doubt. But when a group of believers is enjoying the, uh, the radical unity and generosity of spirit and the freedom of the spirit-filled life, people are going to notice. And as I said, when that happens, it's something that's special. And because it is a special thing, people are going to be drawn to it, both for good reasons and bad reasons. And the important thing I think for us to remember is that it's not our role to decide whether someone who is drawn to the work of the spirit is drawn for good reasons or bad reasons. It's, it's not Barnabas who, you know, kills Ananias and Sapphira. The church doesn't haul them outside the city and stone them or anything. 
the spirit's role in the case of Ananias and Sapphira is to be the one who determines motivations, and it's the spirit's role now. Our role is to do what we can within the church to diffuse legalism and hypocrisy and, and take their power away by creating that space for great grace, not for people who are perfect, but for people who are being made perfect in the image of Jesus, regardless of how slowly or uh, you know, two steps forward, one step back that process might be, we need to make room for that, that process to happen. And we also need to make sure that anyone who would join us and would be a part of what's happening knows that what we expect of them is only what scripture expects of them, what God expects of them, and nothing else, nothing more. Anything else that they might feel compelled to do, we need to free them from because that is just another fence between them and Jesus. Third, we can take from this that the work of the Spirit will be attacked. Satan will try to topple it. Even in a church that we're told is of one heart and mind, that's under the leadership of the apostles, that is characterized by grace, Satan finds his niche and and goes to work in that. Satan doesn't have the power to make anybody sin, but he can certainly encourage it. And and I think that he knows that often the greatest threat to a church can be within by cultivating the the fruits of those bad attitudes and and habits and those root sins in the heart that that just fester when, you know, as, as Peter says of Ananias and Sapphira, we allow Satan to fill our hearts. When we know that, we know that Satan will try to attack. But the good news about that is that the Spirit will defend its work. The Spirit will protect the things that he is doing and and protect believers. Uh, He is our helper to resist temptation, and he's helping us to fight a battle, most importantly, that is already won. Because he's a spirit of truth, he will expose deception, whether that be deception between us, deception from people who would make themselves enemies of the church, deception to ourselves, perhaps, to, you know, deny that maybe we have some of those those root sins festering that need to be addressed, regardless of where danger presents itself, the Spirit will protect its work. And finally, the work of the Spirit will be transformative. I hope more than anything else that that is what we take away from this morning. The passage that we've studied today, you know, as I said, there's, there's big moments, there's flashy moments, there's drama, there's scares. It can be flashy and, and confusing and ominous and exciting. But I really think that the most important image for us to keep in mind is what comes before all of that. The picture of the church at the end of chapter 4, because that is the situation that precipitates all this thunder and lightning. So I just want to read that, uh, that passage and, and sit in this picture of the church. It says, Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and nobody claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. That is the picture of the Spirit at work in the church, and of the Spirit taking a community and remaking it in the image of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church 
for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.